Welcome. You are listening to Aftersight. This recording is intended solely for individuals who are blind or have low vision. Hello, and thank you for joining us for Catholic News. My name is Pippin Halle. Source of our program is denvercatholic.org. You're invited to a special archdiocese and discernment listening session by the Archdiocese of Denver. At the request of Pope Francis, the Archdiocese of Denver will be holding two additional listening sessions for the Synod on Synodality in March. You are invited to participate in the listening sessions, which will be held at Immaculate Heart of Mary Parish in Northland in both English and Spanish. The English session will be held March 7 from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m., while the Spanish session will be held on March 11 from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Participants will be asked to pray with and discuss the following two questions. Where have I seen or experienced successes and distresses within the church's structures, organization, leadership, life, that encourage or hinder the mission? How can the structure and organization of the church help all the baptized to respond to the call to proclaim the gospel and to live as a community of love and mercy in Christ? For those who cannot make it or would prefer to discern on their own or within their own group, an online discernment option is available to submit the fruit of their discernment to the Archdiocese. The Archdiocese and discernment process has thus far included listening sessions that were held at parishes during the winter of 2021 into the spring of 2022, which culminated in the Greater Archdiocese and discernment gathering during Lent of 2022. That gathering revealed four key missions in the Archdiocese, as well as several key themes that have served as guiding posts, the greater mission of the Archdiocese. Additionally, the Archdiocese issue, issued an executive report that was submitted to the Vatican as part of the process. We invite you to prayerfully consider attending these listening sessions. To RSVP for the listening session of submit or submit your own sermon fruits, visit archden.org forward slash synod, forward slash discernment. A daily examine for Catholic business leaders by Paul Winkler. In Hemingway's novel, The Sun Also Rises, there's a dialogue between two characters which goes like this. How did you go bankrupt? Bill asked. Two ways, Mike said. Gradually and then suddenly. Gradually and then suddenly might be one of the most profound insights into how our hearts as business leaders can change for the worse if we are not constantly vigilant. At first you cannot see or notice it happening. Then suddenly you realize that both you and your organization, whether you are at the helm of a for-profit or non-profit, has drifted way off course from its original mission. St. Augustine said, Change the heart, and the work will be changed. This saying is true whether the heart moves closer to God or away from Him. No matter what direction your heart goes, so goes the organization you lead. If you are living a divided life, your business will too. 
Jesus addressed those who live a divided life, and he didn't mince words. When Jesus starts a sentence with woe or truly, truly, take heed, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Matthew 23, verse 27, 28. We are human, which means we are broken and inclined toward the triple concupiscence of the flesh, pride, and of an insatiable desire for material gain, such as wealth, social status, or power. It's very easy for us to lose focus on being holy and instead be lured by the trappings of the world. This is why we, as Catholic business leaders, must keep our mission statements under our noses daily. Yes, I said statements, as we all have three missions in life. The first, a universal calling, is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself, Mark 12, 30-31. And the third is your work. You should be trying to achieve excellence in all three. Your business mission statement, why your business exists, nests within the second. Love your neighbor by creating good goods and good services. Also sanctifying all those who interact with your business. The mission to love your neighbor nests within your mission to love God. This is how you love God. I believe that most of us Catholic business leaders try to be holy, but little by little, the daily busyness of life can erode our zeal for our own salvation, and with it, the zeal for other souls as well. It's so easy to breeze through our prayers in the morning go to daily Mass, go to confession, and do all the Catholic things, but still be distant from God in our hearts. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, Matthew 15, verse 8 and 9. The change gradually happens with an emergency phone call or scheduling a meeting during the time you would normally attend daily Mass. The pressure of deadlines overtakes the need to go to the sacrament of confession on a regular basis. The desire for just one more sale to be a bit more secure in his month's numbers makes us less reliant on Christ and more on our own effort. What was once an exception just this time quickly becomes the norm of end time for God gets pushed off your calendar completely. When we take our eyes off Christ, we also push him from our office. It also means we cannot reflect him in our business dealings. Gradually, then suddenly, the Catholic culture and nature of your business is replaced with a dysfunctional and perhaps even a toxic work culture what was once a vocation of work for those you employ downgrades to a career, then again to become just a job, a job they may hate. In 1965, Paul Paul VI wrote in Gaudium 
at, at, at Spes that the split between the faith which many profess and their daily lives deserves to be counted among the most serious errors of our age. That's because that split, living a divided life, is a life of hypocrisy, a life of lies to yourself and to others. This can and does happen more often than we like to admit. I'd like to suggest a daily examination of conscience for business leaders, also called an examine. Start with identifying your predominant fault. Look at the triple concupiscence for hints of what your what yours might be. This fault will be the primary driver, in most cases, that causes the division between God's will and your will. Then with your predominant fault front and center in your mind, ask yourself these questions and with humility answer them. How did I not act in a Christ-like manner to my employees, customers, or vendors today? How are my business practices not conforming Christ's expectation of me as a Catholic business leader? How will I resolve to change and become a better reflection of Christ in the workplace tomorrow? Take up this practice daily, and you will you might find that gradually and then suddenly, You'll be living a more integrated life. Nine things you need to know about the chair of St. Peter by Jimmy Aiken of the National Catholic Register. Yes, there is a physical object known as the chair of St. Peter. It is housed at the Vatican at the back of St. Peter's Basilica. February 22nd is the feast of the chair of St. Peter. And there is more to this story. Here are nine things you need to know. What is the chair of St. Peter? It depends on what you mean. On the one hand, there's a physical object, an ancient ornamental chair located in the apse of St. Peter's Basilica. On the other hand, there is the spiritual authority that this chair re represents. Here we will look at both the physical object and the spiritual reality it represents. Two, what is the physical chair of St. Peter? This object known as the Cathedra Petri, Latin for St. Chair of Peter, is located in the apse of St. Peter's Basilica. It is in the back of the chamber behind the famous altar on the back wall, below the well-known stained glass image depicting the Holy Spirit as a dove. This display contains an ancient chair that has been repaired and ornamented over time. The Catholic Encyclopedia states the states of the original chair. The seat is about 1 foot 10 inches above the ground and 2 feet 11 and 7 eighths inches wide. The sides are 2 feet 1 and 1 half inches deep. The height of the back up to the tympanum is three feet five and one-third inches. The entire height of the chair is four feet seven and one-eighth inches. According to the examination then made by Padre Garucci and Giovanni Battista de Rossi, the oldest portion is a perfectly plain oaken armchair with four legs connected by crossbars. This wood 
is much worn worm-eaten, and pieces have been cut uh, cut from various spots at different times, evidently for relics. To the right and left of the seat, four strong iron rings intended for carrying poles are set into the legs. How has the chair changed over time? Various modifications have been made to the chair to repair and ornament it, most notably the famous Italian artist-architect Bernini, 1598-1680, created the current display. The Catholic Encyclopedia notes, During the Middle Ages, it was customary to exhibit the chair yearly to the faithful. The newly elected Pope was also solemnly enthroned in this venerable chair. In order to preserve the, for posterity this precious relic, Alexander the Seventh, sixteen fifty-five to sixty-seven, enclosed after the designs of Bernini, the Cathedra Petriabove, the apsidal altar of Saint Peter's, in a gigantic casing of bronze, supported by four doctors of the Church: Ambrose, Augustine, Athanasius, and Chrysostom. For did St. Peter really sit in this chair? In the earlier 20th century, the Catholic Encyclopedia stated, We conclude, therefore, that there is no reason for doubting the genuineness of the relic preserved at the Vatican and known as the Cathedra Petri. However, since that time, the fields of history and archaeology have advanced considerably and when Pope Benedict addressed the subject in 2006, in 2012, he spoke in a more reserved way, saying, Dear brothers and sisters, in the apse of St. Peter's Basilica, as you know, is the monument to the chair of the Apostle, a mature work of Bernini. It is in the form of a great bronze throne, supported by the statues of four doctors of the Church, two from the West, St. Augustine and St. Ambrose, and two from the east, St. John Chrysostom and St. Anastasius, general audience, February twenty-second, two 2006. The chair of St. Peter represented in the apse of the Vatican Basilica is a monumental sculpture by Bernini, it is a symbol of the special mission of Peter and his successors to tend Christ's flock, keeping it united in faith and in charity. Angeles, February 19, 2012. He does place less emphasis on the archaeological authenticity of the chair than on its spiritual significance. 5. What is the spiritual significance of the feast the Church celebrates on the 22nd? According to Pope Benedict, this is a very ancient tradition proven to have existed in Rome since the 4th century. On it, we give thanks to God for the mission he entrusted to the Apostle Peter and his successors. Cathedra literally means the established seat of the bishop placed in the mother church of a diocese, which for this reason is known as a cathedral. It is the symbol of the bishop's authority and in particular of his magisterium that is, the evangelical teaching, which, as a successor of the apostles, he is called to safeguard and to transmit to the Christian community. To see the see of Rome 
after St. Peter's travels, thus came to be recognized as the see of the successor of Peter and its bishops. Cathedra represents the mission entrusted to him by Christ to tend his entire flock. Celebrating the cheer of Peter, therefore, as we are doing on the 22nd, means attributing a strong spiritual significance to it and recognizing it as a privileged sign of the love of God, the eternal Good Shepherd, who wanted to gather his whole church and lead her on the faith of salvation. General Audience, February 22, 2006. Additional spiritual insights are found in the scripture readings for the day. Six, what does the first scripture reading of the day have to teach us? The first reading for the day is 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4, which reads, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Tend the flock of God that is your ch- that is your charge, not by const- not by constraints, but willingly, not for shameful gain, by eagerly, but eagerly, not as domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd is manifested, you will obtain the unfading crown of glory. This reading introduces the idea of the leaders of God's people as spiritual shepherds, focusing on Christ as the chief shepherd. Although Peter is below Christ as his under-shepherd, under John 21, verses 15-17, he does not direct attention to himself. Instead, he extends the office of the shepherd to the leaders in his audience, revealing to them the way that they are to reserve the portions of Christ's flock entrusted in their care, not by lording it over them, domineering over those in your charge, but by serving in a truly spiritual manner, being examples to the flock. The first reading thus serves as instruction in the first place for those who are ordained ministers in Christ's church, but in an extended way, it serves as instruction for all of us, for we all influence others and should set the same example. 7. What does the responsorial psalm of the day have to teach us? The responsorial psalm is taken from Psalms 23, verses 1 through 6. It also echoes the themes of shepherding. In this case, the Lord is identified for the individual believer as my shepherd, with the result that I shall not want, that is, I shall not lack anything. The whole psalm, thus, is taken up in the theme of the day, focusing on the relationship between God as the ultimate shepherd of our souls and we as the individual members of his flock. 8. What does the gospel reading of the day have to teach us? The Gospel reading for the day is Matthew 16, verses 13-19, in which Jesus declares Peter the rock on which he will build his church. 9. Does the Pope have to have to sit in the physical chair of St. Peter to be infallible? No. Although the Pope's infallible pronouncements are called 
ex cathedra Latin from chair statements, he does not have to be sitting in the physical chair, which is rather high off the ground in any case. In fact, he doesn't have to be seated at all. He simply has to use the fullness of his authority as a successor of Peter to definitely teaching a particular matter pertaining to faith or morals. This use of the full extent of his teaching authority is referred to figuratively as him speaking from the chair of St. Peter. It's a figurative expression, not a reference to the physical object. Sustaining the fast, simple meals for the Lenten desert by Jared Stout. Lent calls us into a season of 40 days of fasting. It's common for us to focus particularly on one edible attachment, chocolate, alcohol, dessert, etc. Throughout Christian history, however, Lent called everyone to a more rigorous time of general fasting and asceticism. Mandatory fasting may have been reduced to two days, but the season, in its essence, entails 40 days of curtailing our food intake. This entailed abstaining from all animal products except fish for full 46 days, Sundays included, and not eating a full meal until evening on Monday through Saturday. 30 Christians fasted completely until evening, but over time some collations, snacks, were allowed afternoon. Fasting entails not eating, but what we do eat during Lent should reinforce our focus on the goals of the season. Not eating should make us hungry for God and our higher needs. When we eat, this too should point us to God and conversion. To turn away from the flesh, we stop eating the flesh of animals, reminding us of the danger of following our own fleshy appetites. Fish would be seen as an exception to get around fasting, and Catholics love to find those. But eating fish positively points us to our true food. From the beginning, the fish represented Christ himself, the ichthys, Jesus Christ of God, Savior, who offers us the daily bread we need to survive. Eating fish also offers a sign of conversion as we turn to Christ in Lent and fight us throughout the year. And when it comes to fish fries, let's just keep it simple for our day of sacrifice. Special foods have risen to meet the demands of the Lenten fast, with pretzels made of flour and water being the most famous. The pretzel's origin may have been lost to history, but we do know with certainty that it arose in the early Middle Ages, the time of the monks, with the first recorded mention in the 5th century, by the 12th century, they were common enough in Germany to appear on the emblems of bakers as a symbol of their craft. But if you eat pretzels, won't you need a beer to drink with them? Is that allowed during Lent? Early Christian fasting proscribed wine along with oil, meat, and dairy. Beer was not widely consumed in Greco-Roman culture, making this bakery-based drink another possible exception to the Lenten fast. Some have even claimed that monks survived solely on beer during Lent, but based on my research for the beer option brewing a Catholic culture yesterday and today, it was used in Bavaria as a supplement during the day until the sole evening meal. Finally, a simple Lenten soup offers a perfect course for the penitent, Father Xavier 
Weiser described two Polish recipes in one of its many books on Catholic customs of the season, in this case the Easter book, which also addresses Lenten customs. The first is simply called Lenten, a postna soup made with sautéed carrots, celery, and onions, which are then simmered in water. The second is postna grahovka, Lenten pea, Lenten pea soup, comprised of a pound of split peas, seasonings, salt, pepper, bay leaves, and allspice, and a cup of carrots. All the ingredients should be boiled for four hours, except the carrots, which are added halfway through. Add some pretzels alongside a bowl of Lenten soup, and you'll have a perfectly simple meal for the season. Why focus on Lenten foods? These examples point us to the ancient custom of more serious fasting throughout the Lenten season. They call us to abstain from meat, to refrain from eating between meals, to substitute meals for more simple snacks, and to curtail any luxury from our eating habits. What we eat should remind us of the call to fast, which in turn should point us to the Lord as the true sustenance of the season which he offers us in our daily prayer with him in the desert. Thank you for joining us. My name is Chris Mahalik. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aftersight.org or by calling 303-786-7777.